This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we finish our exploration of the Sermon on the Mount, talking about gates, trees, fools, and houses. Sounds like a blockbuster to me. I don't know. Blockbusters that work with podcasts? What am I looking for here? Sure. It's a wing dinger. <laughs> All right. We're, our goal here today, excuse me, <coughs> our goal here today is to uh, finish up Sermon on the Mount. That is our goal. We're going to get to the end of chapter seven. And uh, I got no notes today. There'll be no reading, no manuscripts. I'm just going to, we're going to talk. We're going to talk. So, Brenton, you're going to read. I'm going to talk. You're going to ask me questions. I'm going to throw some answers out. We'll see how long it takes us. Could be a new record, short or long. This is uncharted. <sighs> yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'm guessing not short. I'm guessing not a record in shortness, but this comes from experience. All right, Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Let's jump right in. We're jumping in. Where, where are we at, Brent? Verse 13. All right. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. All right. So, so talking about heaven and hell, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heaven and hell. So, yeah, let's just do that real quick. Like, let's make some observations. We always use this to talk about things like eternal destinations. And just notice there's no reference to that. Even even in just the original, like Jesus language, like forget all the wrestling matches we've been doing about what hell is and Gehenna and the usages of the word and all that. Like take all the contextual nuances and debatable material away. Just look at what's being said, even just in the English. Jesus isn't making any comments about eternal uh, eternal damnation or eternal salvation. Enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Doesn't say eternal destruction. Doesn't say hell. Doesn't say any of that. We're just, we project all that because of our theology on here. And Jesus does use the word eternal at other points. Absolutely. He uses the word hell. He, he's the only one that uses the word hell outside of James. So, I mean, he knows how to use the words in the Sermon on the Mount. He's used it uh, two or three times. So, definitely. Um, just not, not what he's referencing. He's referencing this larger idea that, um, Life and destruction. I, I think a Jewish listener would think back to like the book of Deuteronomy. I set before you the way of life and the way of death, Moses said. Choose life. Um, all, all kinds of conversations in Torah and even the rest of Tanakh about life and death and choosing life and those kind of things. Destruction and life. Um, the way that, see what says, I, I kind of quit quoting there. Uh, let's see here. Small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. Yeah, the word life and only a few find it. I want to make sure you're using the right word there. Life and destruction. And I think this is similar to at the back end of the um, of the Beatitudes. In fact, we we saved what I would even say isn't even the last Beatitude, but there were two. There was a Beatitude and the following statement were on which uh, we posted it not too long ago, a few episodes back. I think it was uh, Hope of the World. We had that episode um, just a few weeks ago. Uh, what was the double, there was a double proclamation Blessed are you, blessed are those who are blank. What was that, Brent? Persecuted. Persecuted, right? And we talked about the pronouns being different. The last beatitude are blessed are those who are persecuted. And then after that, Jesus followed up with blessed are 
you when you're persecuted. Exactly. And we suggested in that podcast that um, Jesus is making these proclamations about who's in and who's out. Remember that theme of mumser that's in Matthew. Um, who's in and who's out and God's favor being on all those that we assume God isn't in favor of. And then at the end of this, he turns his attention specifically to the disciples and says, and if you actually believe this, this is not going to be easy to walk out. So blessed are you when you end up being persecuted because you believe these things, when you believe in this kind of gospel, when you go to uh, bring people this kind of kingdom. I think this is a similar kind of idea now on the backside. And we suggested that maybe there's a chiasm here and appropriately the right spot here, the same idea on the backside of the chiasm, which, or the backside of the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, tipping my hand there. Um, but the other side of the Sermon on the Mount has a similar idea, which is it is not going to be easy to do this. Um, I preached on this a little bit more in depth. I think you're going to link in the show notes uh, the audio of a sermon that I gave recently on the Sermon on the Mount in this section. But I heard once um, a preacher in in Michigan use uh, a local talk about a, a local like freeway highway interchange, and uh, and we have listeners all around the country, so they're going to have to like think of their own local situation. In the sermon, I made it more local to us here in the Pacific Northwest. I talked about uh, Tri-Cities. If you're a local listener, uh, the Tri-Cities, Pasco, Washington, Richland, um, Kennewick, you have that Tri-Cities area, and there are these all these interchanges with the highways and the interstates. And there's one interchange in particular, if you're trying to head, uh, there's one direction to go towards, um, kind of down the border, what would take you more towards the coast, towards Portland, Vancouver, that area there. And then you have another direction that's going to take you south more towards Pendleton, and it's going to start sending you back towards Idaho. And there is this, if you're coming from the north, there is this interchange you have to make where you get off one freeway and it's going to kick you onto the left-hand side. Uh, and there's going to be about four or five lanes. I cannot remember exactly. But you have to make it over four lanes of traffic in less than a quarter mile in order to hit the right side exit. You're, you're coming on a left side on-ramp to a right side off-ramp in order to make the connection you need to make. And so if you've never done that before, I can't imagine people just flippantly making it. Like the first time you do that, you, you miss it because you're just not aware of the interchange that's coming up. Uh, series directions are really complicated, and you're like, what? She can't be right. And then you realize, oh, my goodness, she is. Um, and you miss your your exit. Um, if you're used to it, you you have to hit it with intention. Like you come off of that exit, and you are resolute. You are checking your blind spot. You have your blinker on because you are going to have to make three successive lane changes just to be in the right spot to catch the exit you need. And so that's the idea that this um, this preacher used, and I, I love that concept. I've brought it with me for years now. That's the intention that Jesus is talking about. If you want to walk out this Sermon on the Mount way, if you want to walk out the way of the gospel, the way of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, you are going to have to do it with intention. You are not going to stumble into it. If you're just going to stumble down the path of life, well, wide is the road that leads to destruction. Lots of people are on that. But if you want to find life, you're going to have to, with intention, work at walking that path. And so that gate is narrow because it takes so much intention that only a few people find it. You have to be looking for it. So that's the not eternal destinations, 
but the kind of intention that we're going to have to live with if we're going to live out this kingdom. And and he's been talking about some hard things. Like the last podcast, we talked about judging. Well, we, we started with what idea, Brent? It's a part of our anatomy. Well, the, the good eye. The good eye. And that good eye causes us to see the world. Uh, if we don't have a good eye, it leads us to what? Can you remember? Uh, if we don't have a good eye. If we have a bad eye, it causes us to... Do all sorts of terrible things. Uh, yeah, of course. But because we're driven by uh, worry, right? Yeah. And that worry causes us to judge other people. And so instead of instead of having a bad eye, worrying and then judging others because we're worried that God's not going to do his job, why don't we instead, Jesus suggested, ask God to do what's right and then just live with a good eye because I trust that God has this. Like God's going to take care of justice. God's going to take care of my enemies. God's going to take care of the things that need to be taken care of. Probably not in the way that I want him to, but I can trust God to do his job. So that allows me to live with a good eye. That's not going to be, like, does that come as just second nature to you, Brent? Like living with a good eye? Is that easy? Not particularly. Not particularly. Like we have to be disciplined to wake up every single morning to wrestle this beast to the ground and and get on top of this thing. So it's not going to be it's going to be something that we have to have intention. So this teaching coming right after Ask, Seek, and Knock where we left off makes, again, all kinds of sense. This is one single thread of thought being weaved through the whole sermon. Go ahead. Pick up where we left off. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. One so again, f- we're talking about hell, right? With the fire. Yeah. <laughs> there we go again. It's just our theology is all in the middle of this. Uh, one of my favorite teachings of Jesus, and not just here in the Sermon on the Mount, but this teaching of Jesus shows up in many different places throughout the Gospels. Like this is one of Jesus's repeated teachings. It has a couple different nuances, a couple different forms, and a couple different Gospel locations. But Jesus says this more than once. Um which always makes me like stand up to attention when Jesus has a teaching that repeats itself throughout his ministry in multiple locations in multiple gospels. What that tells me is Jesus must have taught this principle frequently. And I think we pointed this out before. Like if Brent, if you were to travel around with me and you've already traveled around with me on some level, like you've heard Bema, you've gone to Israel and Turkey. Like if you were to go on all these different trips that I've been on, you would, people that work with me, my development team here at Impact Campus Ministries, they've probably heard me give certain teachings multiple times, especially the ones that are kind of like my staple teachings. Similar with Jesus. If we're bumping into a teaching in multiple places, it's it's very likely this was a frequent teaching of Jesus. And what I love about this teaching is I feel like we should, I don't know why we don't spend more time with this. I kind of probably have a hunch, actually. probably has to do with empire and the Christian empires we are trying to build and it not being, being counterproductive to that imperial agenda. But I don't know why we don't spend more time with these teachings, especially if it's one that's frequented by Jesus, because this would be incredibly helpful in our world. Jesus is teaching here. Is that when you're out looking, okay, let me just ask you a question, Brent. When I say false teacher, what is the Christian world, like, if I were to ask you, what is a false teacher? Like, what are they doing? What is the Christian world going to typically talk about, Brent? Someone who is specifically interpreting things incorrectly. Right. We're going to talk about, like, doctrine. We're going to talk about false teaching being, there's a word we have, orthodoxy. 
Like the definition for us Western Christians, the definition of a false teacher is somebody who teaches things that aren't orthodox, which is totally legitimate. It's a logical explanation. It is true. It's just not what Jesus's point is here in this passage. There's another idea we don't talk about nearly as much in the Christian world, and that's the idea of orthopraxy. So orthodoxy, ortho, right, doxy, belief. Orthodoxy is right belief, right thinking. And then there's orthopraxy, which is ortho, right, praxy, practice. There's right belief and there's right practice. And what Jesus talks about here is right practice, not just right belief, which I love that because in the Western Christian world, all we do is we think about the content. And that's not what Jesus invites us to do. He says, beware of false teachers, and then says, by their fruit, you will know them. He doesn't say by, your, by their doctrine, by their truth, by their words, you will know them. And again, by the way, ooh, let's do the chiasm thing, Brent. What sat on the other side of the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning? It was right after the Beatitudes. Right after the Beatitudes would be the light of the world. The light of the world, following right after that. Salt of the earth. Yes, right after that. I don't know. For I did not come to abolish, abolish the law. Abolish the yeah. law, or I came to fulfill the law. Yes. And that whole discussion about abolish and fulfilling, which abolish and fulfilling, we said, what was it that we said abolish and fulfilling meant, Brent? What did that mean? If a rabbi fulfills Torah, what is he doing? He's living it out the way it's meant to be lived. Orthodoxy or orthopraxy? Orthopraxy. Orthopraxy. And if he's abolishing Torah, what is he doing? He's not living it the way it's supposed to be lived. Does either of those options have to do with the words that are coming out of his mouth? Nope. If a rabbi were to say everything technically correct, like if all the words were true, but then he were to go out and not live according to what he just said, would he be fulfilling or abolishing Torah? Abolishing. You see, on the other side of the Sermon on the Mount, now on this other side, we have a very similar teaching, which is, by their fruit, you will know them. And I love to couple this up with, and you'll hear this in that sermon if you listen to it, I love to couple this up with the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. Not directly tied, and yet I think plenty of reason to tie these two ideas together. If you have a teacher and the fruit of his life, her life, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, you have somebody that's walking, as Paul says, in step with the Spirit. They're walking in the Spirit. In Jesus' words here, you're finding good fruit. And that's the example that Jesus uses. He says you cannot pick good fruit, grapes, figs, from thorns or thistles. If it's good fruit, it has to be coming from a good tree. Uh, and likewise, you can't have somebody that says, well, I'm a grapevine. I'm a fig tree. But if the fruit coming out of their life is division, fits of rage, debauchery. If the orthopraxy is off, it does not matter how true the content is. It's still, according to Jesus, a false teacher, because I will know a teacher whose life and conduct and ministry and Jewish idea walk, I want to emulate by the fruit that comes out of their life, not just the content of their teaching. I could just talk for ages on this, but... So if we go back, we talked about the idea of uh, the Pharisees who said the right things and did the right things, but in their heart they were... Correct. Still messed up. Yeah, and I think if you really apply Jesus' teaching here, I think Jesus would say, look at the fruit that comes out of their walk. They're saying the right things, 
and they're doing the right things. But as we've talked about, this whole Sermon on the Mount has been about the what, Brent? Getting to the the heart. The heart. And I think Jesus would say, I know that their heart, as Jesus is going to say later in other teachings, out of the heart comes uncleanliness. Out of the heart comes every evil practice. They're saying and on the surface doing the right things. And yet if I were to look at the fruit of their life, what are they doing to the sinner? They're pushing them out. There, there's, there isn't love. There isn't joy. There isn't compassion. There's not uh, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. There, there's some, maybe self-control, but there's not a whole lot of things in the Pharisee's life that are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And so I think Jesus would say, even though they're saying and doing the right things, I can tell by their fruit, which is why Jesus is going to say later, be careful to do what the, rat, what the Pharisees say but do not do what they do. Do what the Pharisees say because they say the right things, but do not live in the same way that they live because their life isn't bearing the right kind of fruit. So do not apply the teaching in the same way they're applying it in their hearts. But we'll keep wrestling with that. It's a really good question. All right, if you're ready, keep moving on. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. All right. Here we have the threefold teaching of the kingdom. I talk about this on some of my trips sometimes when we're in the desert, uh, the threefold teaching of the kingdom. There's a large debate about um, when the kingdom of God talk started in Jewish thought. There are some people that say the Jews didn't start talking about the kingdom until after Jesus. There are some that suggest that the Jews were talking about kingdom before Jesus. There are some, based on the first option, that they didn't start talking about kingdom until after Jesus, that suggests that Jesus was the one who actually started talking about kingdom and planted the seeds that would later become kingdom language in Judaism later. I personally believe that Jews were talking kingdom, the Jewish world was talking kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven before Jesus arose on the scene. And that's because in Jewish thought, in the Mishnah and in the Talmud, we're going to run into the threefold teaching of kingdom. And it goes like this. They said the idea of kingdom goes all the way back to Exodus. Do you remember what thought we would bump into that in session one? Brent, we talked about it an awful lot in session one. Kingdom. Some idea of kingdom that we bumped into, say, in Exodus. In Exodus? Yeah. The, the tests? Right after the tests, they get to Mount Sinai, and God says, if you want to enter into this covenant, you will be for me. You'll be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. And they go all the way back to this idea of kingdom, of priesthood, like a priestly kingdom. And they take this idea and they say, well, that's where we bump into kingdom for the first time. God's idea of kingdom is based off this kingdom of priests. And so they go back to Exodus and say, what is it that we see in Exodus? How does kingdom come? And so they went back to those tests that you were just talking about. And they said, well, well, three things have to happen. First of all, the finger of God has to move. And some rabbis would say that the finger of God moved in the plagues and the Passover and the Exodus itself, like taking them out. Some would say the finger of God moved at the Red Sea. Some would just say all the above, but God showed up to rescue his people. The second thing that happened in the Exodus is the people called him Lord. If you'll note, if you remember back in session one, we said that in the text, the people of God never actually cry out to God by name. Like they don't even cry out to Adonai, yod heh vad They just cry out. 
and God hears them. When they get to the other side of the Red Sea and Pharaoh is drowned in the Red Sea, they throw this massive party with Miriam and her tambourine on the beach. And they sing this song. And for the first time, they call him the holy name of God. They call him Lord. And so the rabbi said, the first thing is that God's finger has to move. But the second thing is that people have to call him Lord. But then they said, but kingdom still hasn't come because it's not until Mount Sinai that God will say, you will be for me a kingdom of priests if, what's the if, Brent? What do they have to do? If you follow his commands. If, absolutely. They're at Mount Sinai and God says, I want, I want to give you 613 rules. He didn't tell them out up front, but that's what it'll end up becoming. I want to give you a law. And if you'll agree to follow this law, then you will be a kingdom. So the Jews said, well, kingdom comes when all three things happen. Number one, the finger of God moves. Number two, the people of God call him Lord. And number three, people respond in obedience. And when all three of those things happen, kingdom shows up. Now, what I love about that is those of us that have grown up in a Christian world, particularly maybe a a super fundamentalist, conservative Christian upbringing, will note, especially in the Protestant world, if we were Catholics, this might be a little different, but in the Protestant world, we'll notice that we do two of them really well. The finger of God moves. We'll say (laughs) that. Yeah, we do that well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We'll recognize that it's all God, whether we're Calvinists or Arminians or whatever, like we'll recognize it's all God that's moving. And then we'll talk about calling him Lord, confession. In the Protestant world, what often gets left out, Brent? The actual practice. The actual obedience. Like we're like, oh, and I can't talk about obedience in the Protestant world because then I get accused of works, a works-based religion, merit-based religion. And so that's the one that often gets missing. And if you're missing the obedience. Well, wasn't it, uh, was it Luther who wanted to throw out the book of James? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Very Protestant idea. And if you're missing that obedience, the Jew would say, well, kingdom can't come. And I would argue we've experienced that in Christian Protestant experience. Like that's the thing that's been missing in what God's been doing through his people is we're missing the obedience piece and that's why kingdom doesn't show up. Now, on the flip side, a lot of us have had friends that would never claim to follow Jesus. They would not call themselves Christians. They would whatever. And yet we know them and they are generous people. They're loving. They they seem to have more Jesus oozing out of their bones, more obedience oozing out of their bones than most of our Christian friends do. And I would argue that God has moved in their life just as much as God's moved in our life. And the one piece that's missing in that formula is what, Brent? The calling of Lord. The calling of Lord. There's no recognition. And the example I once heard of this is apparently France had some king. I'm no expert in the um, Middle Ages. But apparently France had a king centuries ago that had the throne. The problem is, is nobody actually acknowledged his kingship. So he technically was king, just nobody actually honored it, acted like it, acknowledged it. And therefore, his kingdom was never really a kingdom because you had to have subjects that actually acknowledged your rule. I don't want that to be some heavy fundamentalist Christian idea. It's just in the Jewish thought, you need all three of those things for kingdom to show up. You need God to move. You need people to recognize that it's God and call him Lord, not in a Christian dumb imperial way. I'm just saying a recognition of the king. And then you need people to respond to that king in obedience. Then kingdom shows up. Now, what I love about that is we see those three. The reason why I think this this teaching predates Jesus is because you see those three things show up in Jesus' teachings. Two of them are here. What we're missing is the first one. 
The first one is in another teaching of Jesus where he says, if I drive out demons by the what, Brent? By the power of God. By the, particularly... The finger of God. The finger of God is the actual word to use. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you, is what Jesus will say elsewhere. So that's step number one. And then what we have here is step two and three. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who, what, Brent? The one who does the will of my father. Okay, so there's the obedience piece. So... I think this that threefold teaching of the kingdom predates Jesus because if it doesn't, <laughs> it's even cooler because Jesus is literally the author of that theology. Like Jesus is the one who actually came up with the idea of the threefold kingdom. It's sitting right there in our gospels. I think it's probably more likely that Jesus is using a theology that Jews were already using to talk to them. But either way, it's pretty cool. So do those three things relate to the three tests in Exodus? Or was I? I've often wanted to do that, but I haven't. You said three parts and Exodus, and I was like, oh, three tests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think so. I'll just, the short answer to that being no, but there's always stuff I haven't read, and there's always stuff I haven't seen, and some of our listeners send me some pretty stinking cool emails sometimes. So I always reserve the right to learn something new. All right, we'll see what comes out of that. I like that. But yeah, there's a threefold teaching of the kingdom there. So, and, and a lot of people will ask me, does it have to happen in a certain order? I don't think so. That's, I don't think it's linear. It's not Western in that regard. Um, I, I think the finger of God has already moved. I think that part's been taken care of. I think God continue. It's a has and not. It's a has and always happening kind of reality. Like God's finger has moved. We could just say in Jesus as Jesus followers, like God's finger has moved on the cross and the empty tomb. But God's finger continues to move all throughout time. But we can always count on God doing His part. The question is whether or not we're going to do our part. Um, does it have to happen one, two, three? Can it happen in one, three, two? Sure. Absolutely. But those three things have to be present in order for kingdom. Now notice kingdom is not salvation, not for the Jewish mind. It's not all three things have to happen to be saved. I don't want our Protestant audience to get too worked up. It's not that you have to have obedience to be saved. I don't know about salvation. Salvation, that's not a conversation for the Jews. And in their conversation, this is how kingdom shows up. So I don't know about getting into heaven. It's not my point. The point here is kingdom, and that's an important distinction. One last closing. You got more thoughts? Oh, uh, no. I was just I was just thinking back. I had kind of forgotten about this, and I don't even know who it was. But at some point when I was in college, we had a little a little group Bible study thing. And, and this guy came in, and he's like, oh, my gosh, there's this idea of things that are and things that will be and things that have always been and like yeah. there's like so many uh so many angles to look at the reality yeah it's about those greek God verbs we were about, talking about you know, our condition or whatever yeah so those greek verbs we were talking about in our last podcast like so many different ways to in the greek talk about things that are happening have happened will happen and they just have more options than have are and will and uh yeah absolutely it's good all right closing it out Here we go. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." All right, so last closing words of Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount, as we call it. Um, We've talked about this, I believe, in session one. We're going to go back and plug this podcast. We talked about wadis when we were studying the desert. And we were talking about water and different 
images and trees and all those kinds of things. And one of our discussions we had was about wadis in the desert. And this is the image that you want to use when Jesus talks about sand and rock here, because the rock is a a cliff face, a bedrock is the Greek word that's used here. And that would have been much more fitting in a wadi. And you have two kinds of sand in their world. I believe we already talked about all this, but just for review, um, they have two different kinds of sand. They have the sand of the seashore, which is specifically beach sand, beyond the beach of the Mediterranean Sea, beyond the beach of the oceans, maybe even, I don't even know if they, if they would call the beach of like the Dead Sea or if that would be considered sand of the seashore. But then you have just sand. There's sand of the seashore in the Hebrew, and then there's just sand. And sand is what you find at the bottom of the wadi. It's just the um, that sandy sediment. It's not beach sand. It's just that dirt that settles at the bottom of places like wadis and many other places in the desert. So that that's a different kind of sand here. And this is the sand that Jesus would be referencing. A person that hears my words, and this is always kind of perplexing to me because when you hear this, you're like, okay, there's an idiot and there's a smart person. The idiot is the one that builds his house on the sand. And as we mentioned before, this isn't about the building construction. It's not about the substance of the sand versus the substance of the rock. It's about location. The person who listens to Jesus' teaching on the kingdom and decides that Jesus is wrong is like an idiot, a fool, that builds his house in the bottom of a wadi because destruction is imminent. It might not come today. It might not come tomorrow. It might not even come this year. But it's not going to work because that's not how God created the world. It's not how the kingdom functions. But the person who listens to Jesus and decides to take Jesus up on his interpretation of the law is going to be like the person who builds his house up on the cliff face out of harm's way so that when that wadi floods, and it will, at some point it will, he's going to be okay. Now, it's not that there's – see, I've always listened to this since I was a little kid and went, well, one is obvious and super easy, and one is foolish and idiotic and – Only an idiot would do it. It's not quite that simple here because Jesus has just taught something that was so revolutionary. It was so backwards. It was so counterintuitive that if you remember, Jesus had to say, don't think I've come to abolish the law because it was so radical in its interpretation of love and people and heart and internal transformation that people would have been like, whoa, this is a difficult teaching to, is this even what Torah, do you even believe in Torah? And Jesus is saying, yes, not only do I believe in Torah, this is what Torah was always meant to do, which explains why Jesus says, if you'll trust me, you'll build your house on the cliff face. If you don't, it's not going to work and you can be certain that destruction will come. But this isn't one is easy and one is super foolish. It's This is going to take some narrow gate intention. This is going to take some, uh, what's the other image on the other side I'm I'm trying to pull from? This This is not going to be easy. This is going to come with some persecution. This is going to be difficult, this whole idea. But Jesus says, if you trust me, and I think I just hear echoes of, it's not just about trusting Jesus, a Jewish rabbi. Yes, obviously, a hundred times over. But it's also about trusting the story because Jesus is saying this is what the story has always been about. And hopefully everything we're talking about here lines up exactly with what we studied in the book of Genesis. That's what tells us that we're interpreting session one correctly. It has to line up with Jesus. 
There's no part one, part two. It's not like part A and then Jesus, God changed his mind and went to part B in the New Testament. Everything we did in the Old Testament needs to line up exactly with what Jesus does in his teaching in the New, more than anything else. And so when Jesus says, you got to trust me and build your house on the cliff face, it should sound like and feel like God saying, you got to trust me. You've got what you need. You're going to be okay. Just trust the story. It's all going to be okay. It's going to be good. Good eye. It should all match up and line up exactly with the stuff we've been studying for. Man, what's it been? The last two and a half years? I don't know how long I've been doing this. My goodness. But it should be the same story all the way from front to back. Go ahead and give us the last verse of chapter 7, Brent. We did already read this, but, you know, just, That's just right. in case. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. And now that we've looked at the whole sermon, we can really appreciate that phrase because we looked at that already and that word authority. Can you remember what it was in Hebrew, Brent? What was it? Shmicha. Shmicha. He had shmicha. He was teaching like shmicha. He's reinterpreting Torah and everybody's looking around going, you can't do that. Like, who's this rabbi? Like, where did he? They're amazed because he's teaching as, as if he can reinterpret Torah and they're wanting to know where his authority came from. How can you do this? But Jesus is saying, you got to trust me. I see the Bible better than any rabbi who's walked on the scene up to this point. As Jesus follower, I would say better than any other rabbi that's going to come after him more purely, more cleanly, more succinctly, more accurately in Jesus than anywhere else. So there you go. Chapter seven, making progress. That's right. Can't stay in the Sermon on the Mount forever. Can't stay in the book of Matthew forever. And you could. You actually could. We could, but we do. We got to keep moving. I think, uh, yeah, we do have to keep moving. Our idea is to get a a complete view of the entire scriptures. Correct. As much as we would love to stay here and and dig into this because, oh man, there are so many questions. So many questions, so many things and ways to apply this. So keep wrestling, keep digging, get in those discussion groups as Brent's about ready to say. I'm taking the words right out of his mouth. That's true. Yeah, do it. It's important to study this stuff in your havara, to dialogue together, to talk about these ideas and to wrestle with them and talk about how do you apply them in your specific context, where you're at, whether you're in Canada or Australia or Oklahoma. I'm trying to give some shout outs to some groups. We just had uh, recently, we had a group uh, upgrade from a launch group to a full on Miami s- regular scheduled group in Miami. Miami, Florida. By the time they listen to this, hopefully they're still going because they went back to the beginning and they started. If they're still listening to us and they get to session three. Oh, that's true. Ho Nelly. Yeah. If you're listening to this, Bama, Miami, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> Welcome and we're glad you're here. Yeah, pretty exciting. All right. Uh, well, everything you need to know is at BamaDeception.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We'll talk to you soon.